0: This is recording number 10777, from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Vallejo, California. This is the third message in the Tough Stuff series by Randy Bolt. It was recorded on Sunday morning, August 3, 2008. This message is titled, Christian Citizenship – The Intersection of Faith and Politics. So we're going to continue this study that we began um, two weeks ago called Tough Stuff. And we're dealing with uh, issues that are not uh, always the most fun or pleasant um, things, but but that concern all of us and touch our lives in in very real ways. And we need to know what God's Word has to say about this stuff. Now, I, as a a pastor, I... um, I feel like my teaching ministry needs to be broken down into kind of three areas. Inspiration, information, and transformation. That's not an order of a priority. They're all a priority. I believe that a good Bible teacher needs to be somebody who is presenting all three of those aspects of the Bible's ministry to us in some balanced form. In case uh, that didn't make sense what I said, inspiration would be that uh, what we learn from the scripture inspires me to pursue God with a greater passion. Transformation would be that what I'm learning from God's word is reshaping my life, my worldview, my concepts. Uh, It's changing me. And information would be that I'm, I'm interacting with God's Word in a, in a way that's teaching me or instructing me. And all, we need all of that. God's Word is all of that to us. And um, so anyway, I, I try to balance that out as we make our way together through our times of study on Sunday mornings. And uh, this particular series tends to be weighted more towards the informational side of things. We're learning what God's Word has to say about issues that affect us all. And this morning we're going to be talking about Christian citizenship. And before you tune out on me, I want to just set the stage for you. If you, and I'm sure this is not the case or you wouldn't be here this morning, but if you are looking to, for me to be the kind of pastor that's going to lead the charge and protesting against this, that, or the other thing, telling you how you should vote and, and what candidate is you know, the godly choice and that sort of thing. You got the wrong man. I don't talk about that stuff. I don't, I'm not engaged at, in, a, in that form of political activism and neither will this church as long as I have anything to do with it. So there you go. I've said it. Uh, We have more important things to do. Um, We have been assigned by God to communicate His gospel to people who are in desperate need of His saving, His healing, and delivering power. And um, that's enough to keep us busy. So I'm not too worried about trying to, uh, you know, be involved with all this other stuff. And, And so... If you, didn't, uh, if you hadn't already understood that about me or about this church, now you do, and I hope that uh, was not offensive to you. It's just the way it is. But we all, all of us here, live in the United States of America, and I would assume most of us in the room are citizens. And there is something that uh, the Bible, or not just one something, but many somethings, that the Bible says to us about <clears throat> our uh, that that intersection between our faith and and the politics or the political arena that we are, you know, a part of. And that's what I want to explore with you today, especially in this season where we are seems like 24/7 bombarded with information about the presidential campaign and you're ha- you're going to be asked to make dis- very important decisions about our country as you enter the polling place or fill out your your absentee ballot in just a few months and i I'm, I'm just like you in that same place and i'm i'm asking god to speak to me about how My faith and my relationship with Jesus Christ uh, has bearing on those choices and uh, that activity that we're going to be involved in. So that's why we're here today. Matthew 22, and I want to ask you to begin following with me as I read at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. It seems, when you when you read the gospel, it seems like every other page, this turns up. The scribes and Pharisees were always following Jesus around, trying to trap him in his words. He broke out of every box they tried to fashion for him, but they seemed to not want to give up. So they keep trying to present to him... Uh, Controversial topics so that he will take one side or the other and at least turn off half the population um, by, you know, offending somebody. So that's what they're doing here again. The Pharisees are trying to entangle him in his talk. They're trying to trip him up, pose a question to him that will catch him off guard or flat footed. And they sent to him their disciples, the disciples of the Pharisees, with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, um, nor do you care about anyone, uh, and what they meant by that. Uh, this is supposed to be flattery, and, and what, meant, what they mean was not that you don't give a hoot about anybody, but they're saying you, don't, uh, you, you aren't trying to impress anybody. And so it says, you, you don't care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they think they have him over a barrel because nobody in the crowd likes Caesar. Uh, The Roman Empire is an occupational uh, force in their land. And they they don't like Rome at all. And uh, so they figure they've got Jesus over a barrel here. And he is going to trip himself up in what he says or his answer. But Jesus is so masterful at handling this stuff. Verse 18, Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. That's a coin, a form of of money. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. His face is on the coin. And he said to them, Well... Render or give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they they marveled and left him and went their way with their tail between their legs. But I want you to notice here that Jesus is very clear about something. Now, the Pharisees, they were a religious political party. And the Herodians, remember, these are the two groups that are asking the question. The Pharisees sent their disciples along with the Herodians, and they pose this question to Jesus. The Pharisees are a religious political party. The Herodians are secularists. So the Pharisees believe that politics and religion are tied together. The Herodians, secularists, they believe that there's a firewall between. Uh, religion and politics, that they don't mix at all. So you have the two ends of the spectrum. And they come to Jesus and they say, all right, Jesus, what should we do about paying taxes to the hated Romans? And Jesus in his answer says, there are two distinct entities. There's Caesar, government, and there's God. And we owe a unique response to each. Give to Caesar What Caesars give to God what belongs to God. And he's not talking about, you know, some sort of odd blend of the two. But neither is he saying that that there is no connection. He's he's saying that we have a unique uh, response we owe to each entity. Does that make sense? And I want to just let that sort of be in the background... As we move forward, and I ask about four questions and try to offer some, some answers that I, I think come from the scriptures uh, about this subject. Now, my first question is, what is the state's mission? And you know, when I, when I use the term state, I'm not talking like the 50 states that make up the United States. I'm talking about governments, a state. What is the state's mission according to the Word of God? In First Peter chapter two, verses thirteen through fourteen, I think tell us. It says this: Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, or to governors as to those who are sent by him. For the by him, those uh, submit. The Scripture is telling us to submit to human governments and kings and to governors. As to those who are sent by him, by God is what that means, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. That passage tells us that the state's mission is to create a societal structure for the restraining of evil and the promotion of good. We're supposed, that passage tells us to submit to human governments so that because they have been set up by God to do these things to restrain evil and to promote good. Another part of the state 's mission, I believe we can find in first um, Timothy chapter two verses one to two says this: therefore I exert first of all. That supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all uh, who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So the other aspect of the state's mission is to create an orderly environment wherein its citizens may pursue a life of peace, godliness, and dignity. God, we're told in these two passages that we've read, uh, uh, arranges for human governments to be established to provide the citizenry with these things. What's the church's mission? Matthew twenty-eight nineteen to 20 says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This passage gives us the uh, nutshell version of the mission of the church, and it is these things. To influence the peoples of the world for Christ by introducing them to his love and by teaching them his ways. Also, in addition to that, to address and influence governments without becoming identified with them. Because, and I I hope you understand what I mean by that, the things that we've already read, all three of the passages we've already read, indicate that we are to have some kind of, as believers, we're supposed to have some kind of relationship with human governments, but not to become tied to them. Now, I am a registered Republican, but I, I'm, I'm very upset with my party, my political party, because over the last 30 years, uh, the Republican Party has insinuated that if you are a Christian, you should be a Republican, that those two things go together. And I don't believe that. Because I believe that the closer the church, the closer believers are connected to political systems, the less influence we have, the less objectivity we have, the less of a platform we have to speak into the process because we become identified with it. Power, political or otherwise, is intoxicating. When you have power, you want more of it. And when believers, churches, Christian organizations... Uh, find themselves beginning to experience that political power, it becomes something we want more of. And the odd thing, though, is that we have less, as a result, less objectivity, less judgment, less clarity with which to communicate God's mind and heart to our our, uh, society. When the church gains political power it also loses spiritual authority. Political change, get this, political change never produces spiritual revival. Now, see, I've I've lived, most of you don't have this this, uh, enough perspective to know this, (laughs) but I've lived long enough to see a sea change in the United States about how politics the mix between politics and faith has become sort of interwoven in, I believe, an ungodly way. And the idea was that if we can, as believers, change the politics, if we can change the governmental structures, if we can uh, somehow invade those arenas with sufficient numbers and sufficient force, if we could get enough Christians in public office that we could bring about spiritual revival. But dear one, that never happens. Ever. Political change never, ever produces spiritual revival, but the opposite is always true. Also, revival, spiritual renewal is what that means, always produces political change. And I believe it's the role of the church to be occupied with spiritual things, with spiritual renewal, with bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear on the lives of people. And when people experience the change that the gospel of Jesus Christ affects in their lives and they become different people, it can't help but change the society and the government uh, that we're um, up, uh uh, submitted to. So that's the mission of the church. Jesus said, remember, that, there sh- that we have a unique response to each. To Caesar, give to Caesar what's his. To God, give to God what belongs to him. So I've asked two questions What is the mission of the state? And I've asked, What's the mission of the church? My next question is, with my tongue firmly in, in my cheek, can a Christian be a Democrat? We are called as believers to live by the non negotiable principles of Scripture, this book. We are people of the book. But these absolutes can have a variety of applications. There's not just one way to respond to the uh, absolutes of Scripture. And it's a grave mistake to insist that all Christians have the same political views. Our faith demands that we exercise responsible citizenship through informed voting and balanced participation in the political process, but not um, because there's only one way to do that. My fourth and final question is, should a Christian be politically active? And I believe the answer to that question is yes, but within these parameters. The second parameter is that our political activism must be expressed within a submission to the governmental authorities God has placed over us. In other words, we've already read that Jesus sets these these, uh, uh, forces in place or these um, authorities in place and for specific reasons. And so if we're going to become uh, politically active, we need to do it with a submitted heart. In other words, it's not a believer's... um, It's not, I don't believe, a proper uh, activity for a believer to be, let's overthrow every, uh, uh, every aspect of government. Let's be out there just making a mess of things. Anarchy is not... Uh, our role as Christians. There is a, we have to have a submitted heart towards those government agencies that God has allowed to exist for the purposes that, uh, that we've already covered. Now, the exception, though, is when those government agencies or political parties or, you know, um, officers are behaving in a way contrary to what the Bible describes as the state's mission. At that point, the people of God have an obligation to stand up to that. But as long as those basic roles or, or responsibilities that government agencies are supposed to have, according to God, to give us a, a, an environment where evil is put down and good is promoted, where there can be a peaceful and stable pl- um, um, environment where the gospel can go forward and we can live our lives in a peaceful setting, um, then we are, we are obligated to be submitted to those authorities. Also, our political activism must be in the context of Christ's love. And that's difficult because politics is very adversarial. So we need to resist the adversarial and combative nature of politics in whatever way we are politically active. And finally, our primary political activity must be prayer. American Christians will do almost anything but pray. American Christians will stand on a street corner with a picket sign. They will uh, march around City Hall. They will get involved in political campaigns. They will do almost anything but pray. And yet, we've already seen in the passages that we've talked about this morning, before we even turn to the one I'm going to have you look at with me in a moment, we've already seen God calling his people to pray, to prayer. Now, in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, it says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and heal their land. Now, this passage was given to Solomon... After the temple had, some of you will know that Solomon, the son of David, uh, built the temple, the first temple in Jerusalem. It was David's heart to build a place of worship for God in the city of Jerusalem. He, he had established as uh, Israel's capital, but um, God had told David, no, you're, you're a man of, of war and of bloodshed, and I, I'm not going to allow you to be the instrument to create or to build my temple. Your son will. Solomon did. And after the dedication of the temple, the Lord met Solomon. And God said to him, Solomon, I'm going to honor what you have uh, built here. And I'm going to allow my name to be associated with this place. And my presence is going to uh, abide here. And when you find yourself as a people, uh, a nation, when you find yourself having drifted from me. And it's so interesting because the Lord knows this is going to happen. He's assuming this. (laughs) Uh, He says, so when you find yourself as a nation having drifted from me and bad things start to happen as a result, you know, your crops fail and your enemies defeat you and, you know, that kind of stuff. He said, if you'll come back here, pray, seek my face, turn from your wicked ways, I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive your sins and I will heal your land. And I think this has a lot to say to how we can, as believers, be in our primary primary political activity. Prayer. Please vote. Please vote intelligently. Please vote um, thoughtfully. But please vote prayerfully. Participate in the ways that we are invited to by means of the democracy that we live in. And by the way, let me just make this statement too, that democracy is not the same as Christianity. Some people have confused that. It's simply a form of government. I happen to like it. That's why I live here and not in, you know, some other part of the world. But it's not the same as Christianity. Christianity. Now, we do, but there are freedoms that we have as a result of living in a democratic state that are wonderful. And that we get to participate in deciding who will be our leaders. So do so. I invite you to do so. But do so prayerfully. We live in a time, dear one, when things are not going so good. In fact, uh, all the news seems to be bad. Have you noticed that? I just, I mean... Let's think about what God said to Solomon. Solomon, when you drift from me as a people and bad things start to happen, <laughs> come back to me. Come back to this place. Do these things. Pray. Seek my face. When it says, seek my face, well, what does that mean? Well, you know, like I, I'm, I'm doing some premarital counseling with a couple that I'm going to be uh, officiating at their wedding in September. But they live in Oregon. That's where the wedding's going to be. So we're doing it via video conference. And um, we have sometimes it goes wonderfully. The technology works all great. and all sometimes it doesn't. And this week I, I was uh, counseling with them, and they were having trouble with the audio on their end. And uh, so we decided, well, let's just, just do this as a conference call. So we got on the phone and you know, we were, we were, all three of us were on the phone talking. But <clears throat> we decided, all right, well, we'll just turn the audio uh, off and we'll, we'll, we'll use the phones for the audio and we'll, we'll use the cameras to see each other. And can I tell you that there's a huge difference between having a f- phone call and being able to see a person's face. It's like night and day. Because there are expressions, there are there's nuances of things. I can catch them in a lie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's and and so anyway, when when the Lord says, "Pray and seek My face," it's not like we we can um, you know turn on the webcam and see God, but it it is that there's a. A determination, a, a decision in my heart to pursue God beyond just some sort of form of religious duty that often our prayer life uh, reduces to. It's a desire to actually be in God's presence. To, and there is nothing wrong, dear one, with imagining the face of God. Just know that your imagination is nothing close to what God is like, but there isn't anything wrong with imagining God's presence and and wanting to go there and be there. And that's what he says when you... He says, come to me, pray, seek my presence, seek my face. Turn from your wicked ways. And who is this addressed to? Scripture is still on the screen and it's not too hard to figure out. Who is this addressed to? God's people, it's not addressed to the scumbags in Washington, pardon my French. (laughs) It's not addressed to, you know, all the people we would consider to be the source of our problems. It's addressed to the people of God. If my people, when things are going bad, when you've drifted from me, if my people will pray... Seek my face. Turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. Let's stand together because as we approach this, actually, we're not even approaching it. We've been in it for a year and a half, this very hot and heavy political season in our country. We need... To have I think this verse ringing in our ears let's be people who honor God with all that we are and while at the same time giving to Caesar what's Caesar's in the name of God